I know that some of you are quite curious as to who won the chili cook-off last night. So, um, I, I'm, if you're not aware, we had a, an event here at the church yesterday and uh, pumpkin painting for kids and uh, we had a, a chili cook-off and there were 13 crock pots of chili that were here um, and it was, it was delightful. Um, and so someone told me I should make a joke about how much chili was consumed and I'm going to not stick my foot in my mouth and avoid doing that. No jokes about that this morning. Um, but we will announce the winners next week. We actually have prizes coming in. Uh, so we will let you know next week who won the chili cook-off and who you should seek out for the recipe. Um, so, uh, so that'll be happening next week. We had a great time last night. Uh, it was just really, really fun, really enjoyable, good fellowship. Um, Kristen and Marcel uh, and then Danny uh, really put this whole thing together and just did a great job. So uh, if you see them around today, yeah, you can... Yeah, you can tell them thank you. They, they, they worked hard, and, uh, and it, was, it was wonderful. So uh, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. And as you're opening there, uh, just a reminder, um, we, we preach through books of the Bible here. Um, so we, we take them as the text unfolds before us and try to explain what is happening in the text uh, and what the author, the point the author is trying to make. And the reason we do that is because we believe God inspired this book, the Bible, and gave it to us in the manner in which it comes to us, in the order in which it comes to us. And so we believe as you understand what is written in its context, based on what comes before it and what comes after it and how it fits into the whole book, as you understand the passage you understand what God has to say to us. So to really understand God's word to us, we have to understand the words of the text and how they come to us in their context. And so that's what we want to do here. We want to hear from God. I mean, he wrote us a book and he, he tells us the story of the world and about himself and about salvation. And we want to understand that there's no more important message, but we have to get the message right. We want to hear directly from God, and the way to do that is to let the Bible speak for itself, and that's really what we're trying to do, and so that's why we, we preach this way, and that's why we go through passages like we're going to do this morning. So Ephesians chapter 2 is where we'll be. I have to say that one of the most powerful movie scenes uh, that I have ever seen is the last scene in the movie Saving Private Ryan. I don't know if you've watched that recently or if you've ever seen it, but if you're not familiar with it, uh, Saving Private Ryan is a World War II movie, and in the end, there's an old man who is standing in Arlington Cemetery, and he's standing in front of a white cross-shaped gravestone there. And he's, he's obviously quite emotional as he's standing there, and of course, you know, if you watch the whole movie, you understand that this man, this elderly man, was a, as a younger man, was a soldier in World War II, and he fought in the European theater during World War II, and the whole story, the movie, is about his rescue. And there was a, a unit of soldiers who were sent specifically to rescue this man uh, when he was a younger man, and in the end, every single one of these soldiers in this unit died saving him, and he was rescued. And so he's, he's, you know, 40, 50 years older at this point, and he's standing in front of this white grave marker, 
And the grave marker is the captain of the unit who rescued him. And this old man is standing there, and his family is standing at a little bit of a distance. You can see them in the background, and they're watching him stand in front of this. And as he's standing there, he's crying, and he's obviously reflecting on the sacrifice that was made for him. But he's not just reflecting on the sacrifice that was made for him. With his family in the background, he's reflecting on the life that he has lived since that sacrifice. And the life that he's lived was made possible because of the deaths of those men. And so he's standing there, and he, he kind of collapses in front of the gravestone, and he's kneeling there, and he says these words. Every day I think about what you, the captain, said to me on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes I've earned what all of you have done for me. It's a very powerful scene. It continues on after that. But I think what's so significant about his speech there is that he's obviously spent every day of his life living in light of what those men had done for him. I mean, he thinks about it every day. Probably one of the first things he thinks about when he gets up. All those years ago, something was done for him, and it shapes his life every single day. I think you could say that his entire identity... His entire sense of who he is has been determined by his rescue. And all of his thinking and all of his actions have flowed from that sense of identity as one who has been rescued. And so I think if you were to ask him, who are you, right? The question on the screen, who are you? I think he would probably answer this way. He would say, I'm a soldier who was rescued from death by a unit of incredibly courageous men, and I live based on that reality. I live in light of that, and that shapes how I do what I do and how I see the world and how I think what I think. And you don't have to have a a dramatic rescue story in your background to live out of a sense of identity. We all do it. We all act and think out of a sense of who we are. We implicitly understand who we are. Sometimes it's conscience, conscious, sometimes it's not. But we, we live answering this question, who are you or who am I? And it shapes the course of your daily life, whether you realize it or not. And so how would you answer that question this morning? I mean, what would you say? What determines your identity? And there are a lot of secondary answers to that question, Right? Uh, there are a lot of, of, of things you could say that would be absolutely true. I mean, one of the first questions that I ask people when I meet them for the first time is, what do you do? Where do you live? And those are identity shapers. Those are identity markers. They tell you about that person and how that person understands themselves. And so things like your job, your marriage status, are you a parent, your race, your ethnicity, your education, your hobbies, whether you're a man or a woman, your age, your personality. All of those are identity markers. They're how you understand yourself. And all of those are important. And all of those factor into the way you live. But obviously, none of those are of ultimate importance. Those are not the primary markers of identity, even though they are important. The Bible answers this question, who are you? And it answers it very, very clearly And it answers it at the most fundamental level, the essence of who you are. And this is how we need to understand ourselves. This is the primary sense of our identity. And that's what our passage today 
is going to address. So Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And what we're going to see this morning is four ingredients of human identity that every Christian must live by. Four ingredients of human identity that every Christian must live by. And you can see the first one of these is that we were or are dominated by sin. Now, you'll notice there that obviously there are two verbs in this ingredient, were or are. And I did this on purpose. Now, I'm hopeful this morning. I'm hopeful that every person in this room is not currently being described in verses 1 through 3. I'm hoping that verses 1 through 3 are your past, that that you are the same way Paul is describing the Ephesians. This is how you were. This used to be your identity. But I'm under no delusion that just because you're here this morning, that you're a believer, That just because you're here this morning, this is a former way of life for you. There may be those who are here, maybe some of you have been attending this church for years, and you are still existing under the dominion, the domination of sin. You have not been a recipient of God's grace through faith, and so your identity is found only in verses 1 to 3 and not the rest of this passage. I'd love for that to change today. I'd love for this description of human identity to be so clear and so compelling from God's word that you receive the gift of grace by faith and the work of Christ today, this morning, and that everything about your life and your sense of who you are changes today. I pray that would happen. It's pretty clear here as you get into this passage that Chapter 2 starts a new section in the book, a fresh section in the book of Ephesians. So as you're leading up to it in chapter 1, what you've got is you've got a broad picture of God's eternal plan, right? And that's what we've been looking at over the past month or month and a half. What is God's ultimate plan for the world and for the universe and some of the benefits that he has brought to his people? And then as you get into chapter 2 here, now you really start to talk exactly about the benefits that God brings to his people and how they are brought to them. How exactly are we the recipients of all the benefits and the blessings that we've talked about in chapter 1? How are God's people incorporated into the church, into his body? How are they brought into union with other believers? And that's what we'll talk about in chapters 2 and 3, and it's all based on what we saw in chapter 1. And so as we're getting into chapter 2, And then eventually chapter 3, let me remind you of the whole kind of structure of the book of Ephesians. You can see our title here on the screen, or on the the banner over here, Recall and React. And this is the whole description of the book of Ephesians. We are to recall who we are. Our sense of identity is to be found in the way we're described in chapters 1 to 3. And it's all based on the work of Christ and the gospel. And then we are to react to that sense of identity in chapters 4 to 6. We are to walk worthy of our calling. And we're to live in a particular way because of who we are. And so first, you have to understand who you are. That's really what he he gets at here. He begins in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, giving us very specific instruction about our identity. And I'll tell you, as he gives this instruction, it's a pretty bleak picture for us. Look at verse 1. 
and you were dead. (laughs) What a way to start, right? You were dead. I think of spiritual deadness as this is the summary of your spiritual condition. This is the condition that you were born into. You were born alive physically into this world, but you were born spiritually dead. Now, what does that mean, to be born spiritually dead? It means you're unresponsive, spiritually speaking. A dead person doesn't move. They don't act. They can't feel. They can't interact with others. And so to be spiritually dead means we are unresponsive to God. We're cut off from his life. We don't love God. A spiritually dead person can't choose God, can't come to him. The question is, why? Why are we born spiritually dead? Well, it says in verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. This is why you're spiritually dead. It's because of your transgressions, because of your sins. It's because we violated God's law. It's because we've inherited this condition from the first man, Adam. And because we've inherited this condition, we're born into this world in this state of being spiritually dead. We're unable to respond to God. We don't love him. We don't want him. We want to live in rebellion against him, and we are culpable. We are responsible for our sins and our transgressions, our trespasses. It's not just that we've sort of accidentally forgotten to do something that God wanted us to do. That's not what it means to be spiritually dead. Sins and trespasses are conscious and willful rebellion against God, against a holy God. And so think of spiritual deadness as the underlying medical condition, right? This is the the root diagnosis here, but that diagnosis has symptoms. And you can see those symptoms in your life played out. Those are described in verses 2 and 3. Verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, of course, to walk is this this idea of walking is really prominent in the book of Ephesians. And you'll see this as we go on here. But what that really means is your lifestyle. It's everything about the pattern of the way you live. It's the rhythm of your life. It's what you do day in and day out. It's the way you think. It's the way you feel. It's the way you love. It's what you love. It's the way you you live your life. You're dead, and so you walk. You live in a particular way because of this underlying medical, spiritual condition. Now, what's interesting here is your walk, your lifestyle, we're, we're all, most of us, I guess, are good Americans, right? So we tend to think we're free, and we like that idea of freedom. And so we, we sort of like rooted our whole experiment in this country on the idea that we can choose to live how we want to live, right? Freedom is at the heart of our experiment. I mean, maybe some of you have even heard uh, these words from Justice Kennedy. He's retired now, but he wrote this definition of liberty. And a lot of Americans think this is what it means to be free. This is, this is liberty. Here's what he said. The heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. And so we love freedom, and don't get me wrong, there's a, 
lot of wonderful things about freedom if it's rightly understood. But in this sense, the reality is that you and I are not born free. We're not born to, with the ability to choose to live any way we want to live, sort of a blank slate that can go any direction we want to. Because of our spiritual condition of death and deadness, the course of your life, the walk of your life, the lifestyle that you will live has been predetermined. It's headed in a particular direction. It's enslaved. It's dominated. And it's dominated by three very significant masters that have absolute sway over the walk, the lifestyle that you have. And you could summarize these three masters this way, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Look at verse 2. In which you once walked following, right? You're following along. You have no choice in this. Following the course of this world. The system of the world that is opposed to God. And of course, one of the, the most tragic and yet ironic realities of modern American life is people believe they are demonstrating their individual freedom of expression by acting just like everyone else. Everybody looks the same, and they all believe that they're demonstrating their own freedom of expression and ability to live any way that they want to live. But it all ends up coming out the same way. And what this is saying is that worldly influence on us is like being swept away in a raging river. And you're caught in this river and you're not powerful enough to swim to the shore and you can do nothing about it. But we're so self-deceived that even as we're swept along in this river without the muscle strength to get to the shore and people are standing on the banks screaming at us, telling us to, to get out, we're looking back at them going, look how good of a swimmer I am. We think we're cutting our own path in the water and doing what we want to do while the direction of the river gives us no choice and no path out. The world dominates those who are spiritually dead. But it's not only the world. There's another master that comes into play. We're following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's the master of the world system, the devil. Satan here, the prince of the power of the air. Those who are apart from Christ are under his influence. And it's the same influence that is at work in people who are in rebellion against God, the sons of disobedience. And this work in them is cultivating this rebellion against God's authority. And so you've got these two masters, sort of an external master that we follow along with, the world, and a supernatural influence and master, the devil, the prince of the power of the air. And both of these, the external and the supernatural, they pander to your internal desires. And they shape your desires in a particular direction. And so you think you're free to choose whatever you want to, but really your desires have been shaped and you follow along after those broken and bent desires. The way he summarizes that is our flesh. Look in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The spiritually dead person is driven by his or her flesh. Now, the flesh is not the same thing as your physical body. That's not what this is talking about here. Driven by the passions of your flesh is driven by desires that are characteristic of unredeemed humanity. They're desires that are opposed to God and his authority. This person who is spiritually dead is controlled by worldly and sinful wants. Want to's. And the reality is is that these desires are not good for this person. They, They think they are. They think they're living exactly how they want to. But these are self-destructive desires, and they can't help themselves. They don't have any ability to break free from these passions and these desires. They're the most natural thing in the world to them. And yet, it's like an addiction that's out of control and will result in permanent damage and death. That's where it's headed. And so all of these influences on this person who is spiritually dead put them in a precarious situation, a predicament. And that's at the end of verse 3. I read it a second ago. They are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. They're children of wrath. What a precarious predicament to be in. They are justly culpable and deserving of God's wrath. Now, this word wrath, it sounds like a very old school religious word that is a little bit uncomfortable for people to hear, right? We don't like to think of God this way. But, but stop and think about it for a second. What happens if you eliminate wrath over sin from God? How could God be ultimately good unless he despised what is destructive to his creation that he loves and he made good? How could God be good unless he reacted in wrath to what has spoiled his good creation? and his beloved creatures who are made in his image. And so ultimately, you can't have a good and loving God unless you have a God who despises sin and has wrath against sin. Eliminate his wrath and you eliminate his goodness. You don't increase his goodness. And so keep in mind this morning, as you see this really bleak picture painted in verses 1 to 3, there really are only two options here when it comes to this description. This could be your current identity. I mean, this could be how you're going to walk out of here this morning, how you walked in here and how you're going to walk out of here, dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil, by your desires that are pandered to by the world system and are enslaving you and ultimately have placed you in a position as under God's wrath. That could be your identity. Or the flip side is, If you are a believer in Christ this morning, it is so good for you to hear this description because this is who you were. And that's how Paul is describing it here to them. I mean, you can see it right in verse one. And you were dead, right? This used to be you. But it's important that you still understand this as a part of your identity. This is who you were. And so when you answer this question, who are you? You say, well, it actually started out this way as someone who is dominated by sin. But the beautiful thing is, this is not the full answer for you. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, you've repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in him, 
And it doesn't stop at verse 3 for you. It actually continues on, and it's quite glorious. The full answer starts to unfold as to who you are in verses 4 to 7. So we were or are dominated by sin, and if this is a were for you in verses 1 to 3, then here is a substantial part of your identity. We were given life by Christ. So I think, I don't know if I told you this or not, but verses 1 to 7 are one long sentence. So you've seen this already in the book of Ephesians, right? Paul's really only written like three sentences up to this point in the book. And this is one long sentence. But if you're a a grammar person this morning, or even if you're not, you need to understand that you actually haven't even gotten to the subject of the sentence yet. We don't know what the main point of the sentence is. All of verses 1 to 3 have been leading up to the subject of the sentence. And the subject of the sentence is given to us in verse 4. Look there. But God. God is the subject of the sentence. And you know that the subject of the sentence is the one who does the action. He's the one who performs the action, and the actions that he performs here bring about an entirely new situation for his people. And they bring about an entirely new identity, an entirely new answer to that question, who are you? You're not dead anymore. Something else has happened to you. So what's the, what's the verb? If God's the subject, what's the verb? There actually are three verbs here. They're given in verses 5 and 6. Look down there. You were made alive together with Christ. The second verb, verse 6, you were raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what does God do? How does he act as the subject of this sentence? He makes us alive, he raises us up, and he seats us in the heavenly places. And if you'll notice here, all three of these actions happen to us with Christ. It's all with him. It's all in him. And the reason for that is because all of these actions are first and foremost done to Jesus. We're just along for the ride. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 19, you can see this is described here. He's laying out these benefits. He's praying these benefits. Verse 19, and what is the, this is the the third request that he prays. He wants us to know this. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? And then he tells us what God's power and might has done. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, right? Made him alive. That's the from the dead part. He raised him up, the same language we see in chapter 2. Raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus was first and foremost made alive, raised up, and seated at the right hand of the Father. All of that demonstrates God's immeasurable power. Verse 19 tells us that's the power that is at work in us. Well, how do we see that power at work in us? Well, he does these same things to us. These three verbs. He's made us alive, raised us up, and seated us with him. Our destiny, our identity has been forever altered because of what happened to Jesus. And because we, by 
grace, you'll see in a few minutes, are included in that. We are united to him, and so we are along for the ride with him and in what has happened to him. And I want you to notice who receives these actions. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. I mean, we've just seen that language, right? That's the language from verse 1. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so Paul's circling back around and saying, look, the people, the very people that I described in verses 1 to 3, I want to remind you, I'm not talking about a different group of people. It's these people who have received the action that God performs. The situation of the people in verses 1 to 3 has been dramatically reversed. So why would God do this? What would lead him to perform these actions toward people who are spiritually dead in their rebellion against him? Why in the world would he do this? We'll look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Mercy, love, grace, God's actions flow out of his character. God looks at us in our miserable condition, being dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil, under the influence of all three of those and unable to do anything about it. And he sees us in our miserable condition and he pities us in his mercy. And he loves his creation, that he created good, and yet his creation turned our back on him and rebelled against him. But that doesn't discount his love for his creation. And so because of his great love for what he has made, he acts in undeserved favor and grace and kindness toward us. And so if we're being swept away in that river towards certain destruction, what verses 4 to 6 are describing is God pulling us out of the river. He pulls us out through Jesus Christ and through him alone. And when he pulls us out of that river, he pulls us out for a specific purpose. There's an end game here. There's a goal to making alive and raising up and seating us with Christ. Why does he do that? Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is a rescue operation that has taken place for a specific purpose. And that purpose is that we would be trophies. That's it. We would be trophies of grace. And this is, this is the type of thing God does. This is his character. He is a, a showing God. He is a revealing God. He's given us, us his word to tell us who he is. And he wants us to know about his mercy and his grace. And he puts that on display Listen to chapter 3 and verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, right? This is, this is God. This is what he does. He puts on display 
Think about a, a little child who has received a new toy. What do they do with it? They want everybody who shows up to the house to see this new toy. They're delighted with it, and they want to show it off. And that's what God does. That's what he's going to do for all eternity with these trophies of grace. He wants us to receive and rejoice in his character and to bask in the, in the wisdom and grace that he has shown to us. He saves us to put us on display for all eternity. That's what has brought about this monumental reversal of fortune for us so that we can be trophies of his grace. And that word grace may be the most important aspect of this, and that's the third part of our identity. We have received grace. You have to understand yourself as someone who has received grace. This changes everything about how you live. This is really a summary of the whole thing. Verse 8, for, he's explaining here, by grace you have been saved through faith. So there's three actions, right? God makes alive, raises up, and seats us with Christ. And Paul summarizes those three actions with this word saved. I mean, that's a pretty common word for us, right? We talk about salvation, got saved, we're very used to using that word. And sometimes we're so familiar with that word that it loses punch and it loses meaning. And we sort of forget what has really taken place when we say, I have been saved. When we speak of salvation, we're talking about this union with Christ and these three actions that God performs. We're talking about the rescue operation. The rescue operation that God has undertaken to make dead people alive and to raise them up and to seat them with Christ so that they can be trophies of his grace for all eternity. And to grasp this salvation, to, to understand what it means to be saved, you have to think in terms of grace. For by grace you have been saved. Notice what Paul eliminates from the equation because it's by grace. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And he wants you to understand, look, to understand grace, you have to eliminate some things. This is not your own doing. This is not you. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You had nothing to do with this, really. You didn't pull yourself out of the river. This is an act of grace. It's a gift of God. It's lavished on you because of God's character so that you will know his character and rejoice in his character. It's not based on anything you have done. It's not according to works. It's not by human effort. And that's really what he means here, by works. It's not human effort. Every other religion in the world sees that there's a problem that human beings need to be rescued from. There's something wrong in the world. So what is that problem well, the answer is that we need to rescue ourselves from that problem. We have to do something. The rescue is somehow dependent on human effort in every other religion in the world. You have to act. You have to do something to be rescued. You have to perform. You have to swim to the edge of the bank. You have to wave your hand at God so that he'll pull you out the rest of the way. But you have to take the first steps. You have to get your head above water. There's always something you have to do. But Paul makes it quite clear here, it's not by human effort. 
It's not by works. You're not rescued by your own doing. You're saved by grace. And so, because it's by grace, the only way to receive it is by faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. One author described this relationship between grace and faith this way. If God's grace is the ground of salvation, then faith is the means by which it is appropriated. And faith itself cannot be a meritorious work. It is the response which receives what has already been done for us in Christ. It looks to Christ and rejoices in what he has done and trusts in what he has done. And it's by faith so that, look at verse 9, no one may boast, right? We're trophies. Trophies don't brag about how they won the game. It's not how it works. They don't win the game. What's a trophy? A trophy testifies to the work and effort of the players and the coaches. They performed well. And that's what we are. We are trophies. And we have to understand ourselves this way. This should shape and form our identity, your identity. Now, I want, you to, I want you to think carefully with me for a moment about how receiving grace and understanding that you have received grace shapes your identity and your sense of who you are. When you think, I have received grace, I am not deserving of grace. I did nothing to merit this. I was pulled out of this river not based on my own ability, but based on grace. When you understand that, and it really gets into your soul, your life will match that identity. And so what that means is you will start to demonstrate grace to everyone else around you. You will have received grace in such immeasurable amounts that it will be natural for you to demonstrate that grace to others. But I'll tell you, if you believe that you're good enough, and you had something to do with this, that you're smart enough, that you're just plain awesome enough, or at least a little bit awesome enough. I really didn't need grace. Everybody else did, but not me. If that gets into your heart in any form or fashion, and any of your salvation is based on human effort or work, then you will act accordingly to other people as well. And you will not extend grace to them as you have received grace. I think there are lots of Christians who live out of this. They think they've sort of helped God along, sort of been good enough. I'm tempted to do this at times as well. We all are. It's our natural bent to want to solve this on our own and to attribute something in us is, is attributable to salvation. And so because we do that, then we don't treat others with mercy and with grace as we have been treated. And so look at your life. Look at my life. If I'm continually treating people in a particular way with harshness and rudeness, finding everything wrong with what they're doing and not treating them with grace, then I really need to examine, do I understand what it means to be pulled out of that river by grace? When I do, I will humbly give grace to those around me. 
Prideful people who are always critical of others have forgotten that they are saved by grace. This matters. And so the fact that you and I have received grace, we are marked by grace, should become one of the most important identity markers of who we are. I have been rescued. Makes all the difference moving forward. And when you get that, you will start to live out the last ingredient of this and understand that we exist for good works. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This idea of workmanship has the idea of creation, right? He, he formed and fashioned something, us, created us. The word created is obviously used there created in Christ Jesus. And so what he's saying is you have entered into the new creation. You are a part of the new creation the moment that you are saved. You have spiritual life. You have entered into this new creation by your union with Christ. That's why he keeps using these phrases, in Christ, with Christ. Through him, you have entered into this new creation. And as a part of this new creation, you will act accordingly. It will define your life going forward. You are fundamentally different from those in the old creation. I want you to see something here. Go back to chapter one or chapter two, verse two. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, they look at verse two, in which you once walked. They walk in a particular way. Their lifestyle looks a certain way. It's dominated by those three influences. But then flip back over to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, what? Walk in them. Our lifestyle is different now. The former way of life has been put aside we're part of the new creation, and so we walk differently. We look differently. Our new identity has shaped us and formed us. And I'll put this as simply as I can. A person who is alive does not act like a dead person. Right? No person who is alive lives in a casket all day. Life is active. And the type of life that we have received by grace lives in a particular way, and it extends that grace to, and love to others. So that's our new identity. So live accordingly. Cultivate that identity and live accordingly. So how do you see yourself this morning? What's your identity? Who are you? Let me make one recommendation for application here. You're not going to find your identity in Christ. It's not going to become the primary driving force in your sense of who you are. You're not going to think of yourself as one who is rescued by grace unless you consistently remind yourself of what has happened to you, right? I mean, that's the whole point of this series, recall and react. So what this means for us and I'm, I'm really speaking to myself here as much as anyone, is I need to remind myself of what has happened to me every single day. I need to preach the gospel to myself. I need to go over these truths. I need to understand that I've been pulled from the river by grace and not by my own effort. 
I mean, remember that, that scene from Saving Private Ryan that I described earlier. I mean, what does he say? He thinks every day about his rescue. It became the dominant reality in his life. He preached that rescue to himself and tried to live accordingly. And so maybe the best thing that you and I can do in order to grow in good works, this end goal here, we're his workmanship created for good works that we would walk in them to reach that lifestyle then we need to cultivate this identity, and that means preaching the gospel to ourselves every single day, relishing and delighting in the work that God has done because we are rescued, and it matters. It matters a lot. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by what we see in your word this morning. What an amazing reversal of fortune that we have experienced if we're in, in Christ this morning. You have made us alive, you have raised us up, and you have seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, all for your honor and your glory and for our changed lives. So I pray that this identity would dominate us, that sin would no longer dominate us, but that this identity would, and that we would live accordingly. Thank you for your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.